Welcome to Think Business Futures. On this show, we take cutting-edge research and we couple it with real-world examples to explore what is actually happening in business, finance, marketing, the real world. I'm David Brown from the UTS Business School. We love getting feedback from listeners on topics and episodes. Now, on our last episode, we asked you to tell us what topics you'd like to hear more of on the show, and we received some great feedback. What do not-for-profit businesses need to consider when navigating the increasingly polarised political world? Hi, Think Business Futures team. Um, I've just been sitting here thinking about the staggering amount of money that CEOs make compared to the rest of the employees at a company, sometimes up to 50 times as much. It just seems ludicrous. Can you shed some light onto how this is justified in an economic sense? Thanks. Hearing from listeners enriches the show and creates a conversation between us. But it also beautifully illustrates the idea and practice called open innovation. On this episode, we're going to look at how open innovation can be used by government to increase the quality of their social benefit. Here to explain open innovation and citizen outsourcing is Dr. Krithika Rindawa, a senior lecturer in innovation and entrepreneurship at the UTS Business School. Welcome, Krithika. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. It is so good to talk with you about open innovation. So could we just start with this foundational concept that sits in your research? What is open innovation? Well, uh, you know, firms are increasingly expanding their boundaries to collaborate and exchange knowledge with external stakeholders. And the idea behind this is so they can use those external sources of knowledge as inputs in their own internal innovation processes. And to put it very simply, this is open innovation. It's just a novel way for organizations to be able to innovate by collaborating with external stakeholders. So could you give us an example? I'm finding it a bit hard to get traction on that. What does it look like? So let's take the example of BMW that has very well used the idea of open innovation through their co-creation lab, as they call it. Again, an online platform where they uh, where they launch contests uh, based on what they're really trying to come up with next. And the idea is the topics of these contests could range from something as simple as how do we improve the design of our trunk uh, to what do you see, how do you see mobility look in the year 2050. So they've been able to to come up with great ideas uh, for their next model and sometimes even disruptive designs through ideas they've got from their own users and consumers. But users and consumers are now the only sources of external knowledge, the stakeholders you could engage with. But another way by which government and public sector firms are beginning to really think about open innovation is to engage with an online community of citizens who, in turn, if you think about it, are their, are their consumers. They are the ones they're providing and creating services for. Uh, and this practice has been increasingly referred to as citizen sourcing. So it's a way by which uh, government and public sector organizations can engage an online community of citizens to co-create public services and to co-design public policy. Okay, so can I take you back to the application of this in a more commercial context first? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It seems to me you've got two broad camps here or two broad groups. So do you have kind of a way of describing each of those groups? Because you've got the firm and then you've got, I don't know, the market. I mean, how do you describe these two groups? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So there's always a focal firm, the focal innovating organisation that wants to create something new. It could be a new product, a new service, a new business model. So this is the seeker, is that right? This is the seeker. Potter, this is Oliver Wood. 
Wood. I have found you a seeker. They call me the seeker. So the seeker is now trying to obtain new ideas, novel solutions for certain problems that they are facing internally. So one way by which they could do it is to seek ex- seek knowledge and inputs or maybe external sources of technology which are lying outside. So rather than coming up with the technology and knowledge themselves, they might be able to seek that from another organization. So that could be uh, a research organization, that could be a university that an organization is collaborating with. So that in, in this example, the external, uh, external source of knowledge is another organization. The other group of stakeholder that organizations are increasingly engaging with are not just one or two other organizations within their value chain, but actually individuals such as yourself or myself, and not just one or two of them, but in fact a whole crowd of external contributors. And this is a novel form of open innovation also referred to as crowdsourcing. What is crowdsourcing? Crowdsourcing. Have you heard about the term crowdsourcing? Our word of the day is crowdsourcing. Is this other group then that you described, those outside the focal firm, Mm -hmm. are they called solvers? Yes, indeed. So in the practice of crowdsourcing, the, the firm that's really looking to innovate are the seekers, whereas the ones who have those the ideas and the wisdom that might be able to solve some of that problems for the, that the innovating organization is facing, they are the solvers. Okay. So I can see what's in it for the seeker mm-hmm. because you can run a small R&D department, for example, mm-hmm. or pick up great ideas from your market and make more money. Indeed. What's in it for the solver? Very good question again. And also um, an an area that a lot of researchers seem to have focused on. So we know from existing research and crowdsourcing as to what motivates solvers to engage in these crowdsourcing practices. So one reason they might want to do it is to be able to solve a need, a latent need that they might be facing, but they somehow see that the organization hasn't been able to keep tabs on it. Yes, so we have a whole bunch of such users known as lead users who tend to feel the need for, it's a market need that the organization probably hasn't been able to keep tabs on through their own traditional way of doing market research, but through crowdsourcing, they're able to reach out to a broader source of the market to tap into such market-based or user knowledge as such. And the other reason, and very interestingly, that research has found that these solvers engage not just for uh, reasons of solving their own problems, but also because they have this intrinsic need to want to be part of a community of like-minded people who face similar problems, who have similar needs, or there's some common identity that brings them together. Okay, now you just said something really interesting, uh, another thing really interesting in relation to this, and it's that there are all these ideas, you know, it gives the, the seeker opportunity to get lots of ideas from solvers. How do you work from a lot of ideas some of which are great, some of which are awful, and then actually turn this into an innovation. One of the things that's happening today is everyone wants to crowdsource because 
it's a cool thing to do because if you want to signal to your market that you are engaging and you're co-creating and you are out there listening to everything that your users and consumers want you to do. Uh, however, this completely changes the way we have to think about how the organization needs to manage the, their internal innovation process. So the fact that they have this flurry of external ideas means that you need an organizing system to be able to make sense of it and also to see which ones to take ahead into potentially into the, into the commercialization phase. And this is a challenge because firstly, we need an internal team to be able to look at the feasibility of the ideas that have been provided by your external community. But it also means that you have to be have a system to be able to get back or close the feedback loop, so to speak, so the providers of those ideas are kept informed of what's happening to the ideas that they provided the organization with. So many organizations don't have a process uh, to do that, and some of them do that better than the rest. A very interesting case study is that of Threadless. Now, Threadless is an online t-shirt company. It's as simple as that. That's all they are. But when you actually think about their business model, their entire business model is based on a community. A community of their users, community of designers, and community of people who come together. So the first step of the process is the community comes up with a design. And then the community then votes as to which of the designs are cool and which of the designs need to be taken into the next step of manufacturing. And then based on the winning designs, then Threadless then picks one of those winning designs and takes it to the manufacturing stage. And once the t-shirt is manufactured, it goes back into the community portal for people in the community to shop for them or for outsiders to shop for them. So this is an example by which, by which the organization, in this case Threadless, has been able to co-create and in fact even outsource that process of who picks the winning design and kill two birds in one stone because now the community really feels involved in the entire value chain, in the entire value creating process. But not all, all organizations can afford to do this uh, because it's all right when you're building, t when you're making t-shirts, right? But when there are, there's more at stake, you need to have some technical experts or professionals within your organizations, right? Really trying to think about, is this idea even feasible? Is this something that we can actually do? Or is it sounds novel, but we don't have a business model to be able to implement that? So what then the seekers need to be doing is to think about how they might be able to, to develop systems and processes internally to be able to see how they might be able to integrate parts of the knowledge that they've ideas that they got from outside into their internal R&D or innovation systems. Okay, that's really clear. So we've talked a lot about this in the context of a commercial setting, you know, BMW t-shirts. Might go actually have a look at that t-shirt uh, site. Anyway, <laughs> what about open social innovation? Because you've written about open social innovation. You know, what's that? Is that different? Yes, it is different because the idea of open innovation um, 
it emerged from the world of corporate and for-profit organizations. Uh, however, what we see is increasingly we're able to see that non-profit organizations, even government public sector organizations, are able to apply these open innovation and crowdsourcing practices in a way that they are able to co-create their services such that they're able to deliver, so they're able to solve community problems, they're able to solve uh, societal problems, and hence create better value for the community and society. And I call this the open social innovation. So it's use of open innovation practices to be able to achieve societal impact and do some societal good. So is this like citizen sourcing? Citizen sourcing is one form of open social innovation. So it is the use of crowdsourcing in the context of government and public sector organizations to be able to engage with an online community of citizens so that they're able to co-create public services and co-design public policies. So there's been a long history associated with community consultation, Mm -hmm. in particular, for example, in local government. What I hear when I'm being yelled at is people caring loudly at me. There is a disturbing lack of benches in Ramsey Park. I want to sit more. I found a sandwich in one of your parks, and I want to know why it didn't have mayonnaise. Is this different to the more traditional community consultation sort of model? Yes, indeed. So, in fact, it's very interesting that in most governments around the world, especially in local governments, there is a practice or sort of a need to want to engage the community. But what is lacking at this point in time? In fact, it's interesting that in Australia, the Local Government Act mandates every local government to to consult or to engage with the community. But what's the way it's been practiced at this point in time is through face-to-face community consultations. So it is where, for example, you might have a town hall meeting that your local council might throw. Um, it's uh, probably going to be in your local library or um, your community center. Uh, in many cases, you might not even know that it's, that it's going on because there's not enough uh, ways for them to get this information over to you. And it's a way by which, in most cases, uh, what happens is a way for them to be able to share what they're working on, right? So it's in many cases, it's about informing the community about what the council is working on. Uh, however, this is not very effective. It's not very effective because uh, it it prevents the council to be able to engage or reach out to a broader uh, range of local people within their council. And it also is not effective and it's not efficient for them because they're unable to get the outcomes that is actually uh, that they actually set out to achieve through this practice. So one form of, uh, of overcoming this problem is to engage online platforms, very much like how the corporate counterparts have done so, to be able to help them with ideas of what needs to be done, what is the next service that needs to be provided in the community, all the way on to what is the next strategy or policy that they should be thinking about. So it's about co-designing that with the community as well. And this practice is that of citizen sourcing. 
So does this then relate to something you talk about, which is digital crowdsourcing intermediaries? Yes. So one one way by which councils and organisations are doing that is instead of having to host these online platforms themselves, they are they are allowing this to happen through a digital crowdsourcing intermediary. So it is it is part of the movement of professionalising the practice of crowdsourcing and citizen sourcing, so to speak, to an external intermediary organisation whose role is to host that online engagement platform and also to host these specific features and functionalities and tools that are required for the seekers. In this case, it could be the local government with the solvers, which could be the community of citizens. It's like outsourcing the outsourcing of your ideas. Exactly. Yeah. So that brings, uh, that makes it a very multi-actor ecosystem of the seekers and solvers. And now we have the online intermediaries as well, who are very much important to make this interaction work. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're going beyond the town hall meeting and we're discussing new ways of developing public policy and services. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Krithika Rendawa about open social innovation through a process called citizen sourcing. Krithika, we've discussed open social innovation and the way this method is different from the traditional community consultation. You've actually tested this. Can you tell us a bit about the research you did in this space? Yes, indeed. Uh, So the recent uh, research that's been published is in fact in this area of uh, open social innovation. So uh, what uh, we do in this is we we speak to 18 different local government um, councils in Australia and The interesting thing is all of these councils use the same uh, online intermediary platform and they all have engaged in a variety of citizen sourcing projects. In fact, amongst them, they've engaged in about 2,000 of these projects. So, however, what we found extremely intriguing was that there was a great variety and diversity in the way that these different local government organizations actually practice citizen sourcing. So what we found was that some of them were actually a lot more motivated to engage in this practice, whereas some of them were doing it more in a symbolic way. So we were interested in understanding why that might be the case and what outcome, what, what does that mean for the outcome of these projects? So what this all led to was a model of what we call as a citizen sourcing implementation, which starts with the intent of the organisation to engage in citizen sourcing. So can I, sorry, can I just ask you, so what you're talking about then is if you're going to engage with this citizen sourcing, Mm -hmm. this is the general process you need to go through so it's to be effective as opposed to ineffective. 
Yes, indeed. So uh, this model actually tells organizations, government, public sector, not-for-profit organizations, as to how they might be able to best engage in this practice of citizen sourcing and how that would then lead to the best outcomes in terms of societal impact. Okay, so take us through the model. All right. So the model actually starts with what we refer to as seeker intent. So the the intent of the organization to want to engage in this practice. So what that seeker intent in turn affects is it influences the engagement strategy of these organizations. And this in turn drives the project level implementation by enhancing two aspects. One is the project team capabilities, the competencies of the team itself, but also the motivation of the project team members to be able to engage in citizen sourcing. So in other words, but and then eventually we see a link between better project level implementation to better online citizen sourcing engagement behavior. So that then leads to better outcomes of citizen sourcing projects, which in turn we are able to extrapolate and demonstrate that it would lead to better societal outcomes and societal impact as such. Okay, so now I know this is research and probably we have to maintain confidentiality about people and projects and so on. Mm -hmm. But can you think of an example where this worked really well in the model that you described Mm -hmm. and an example where it didn't work really well? So we get a clear understanding of what good looks like and what not good looks like. Um, Absolutely. So let's start with the seeker intent, which is essentially the emphasis that these seekers place on seeking community inputs, right? So this, we found a variance across, in fact, three buckets or three categories of uh, types of councils that we had within um, the the 18 that we looked at. So we found that these uh, could be explained by two factors. So that one was the actual commitment of the top management team itself to practice crowdsourcing, which then influenced the actual organizational goals. So let's take the example of those local governments uh, which had low levels of online engagement, right? So low levels of outcomes and, and practices in terms of citizen sourcing. So what they tended to use was what we term as perfunctory consultation, which essentially means that they tended to view citizen sourcing and crowdsourcing as merely an efficient way to be able to meet the compliance requirements for community consultation. So in other words, let's take the box, right? Yep. And then there were those with sort of medium levels of uh, online engagement practices and outcomes. And they also tended to use a, a symbolic engagement. But there, the intent was more about using crowdsourcing as a way to signal to the community that they are being involved in the decision-making process. But we don't know and nothing much is happening to the ideas, as, you, as we t- discussed earlier, internally. And then those organizations with high levels of engagement behavior, they were the ones who we could clearly see were using citizen sourcing as a means of creating transformative change. 
So in a way of a robust way to co-create value with the community and obviously, and as you might expect, led to better societal outcomes, so to speak. So can you like, think of an example where there was a really great outcome as a result of this? Mm-hmm. So you saw the process and went like, wow, that's great. That would not have been delivered had that council not gone through this process. Yes. So this, um, and as you can imagine, for confidentiality reasons, I can't name the council, but there was, the, there was this council uh, that used this practice very early in the stage of their entire planning. So this is an example of a council that is thinking about creating a plan which is 30 years ahead. So it's it's a plan for the city in the year 2050, as an example, right? So what they what they did was they actually engaged the online community as a way to understand the needs of the community. So let's contrast this with another council that actually used this as a way of, of having, of just taking an exi- already designed plan to, let's say, to, to change the design of their local park or the, their local parking, as, parking area or whatever, and taking that plan to just inform the community. So to put it as an exhibition to say, this is what we've decided, this is just to let you know this is how it's gonna be. In contrast to that, the council we're talking about is actually involving the community to design what their strategy is to, to think of the future of how that community is going to be 30 years from now. And they do that in a phase-wise manner. Right. So firstly, they they understand what the broader level needs of the community are. So what essentially they did was using those inputs that came out of these, the, the design, the themes of the projects. Then they did two things. One is they had sort of these juries for these face-to-face co-creation workshops, which was not just town hall meetings, but more importantly, they used the online engagement platform very effectively to develop specific projects around these themes and then to go back to the community to co-design each of those. So those ranged from, uh, for example, how do we actually develop uh, better local parks and so on, and all the way onto how do we design a better inclusive accessible community a, a community which has more facilities in terms of uh, in, in terms of making it in- inclusive and accessible and so on so what we see is a range of projects that they engaged in and obviously hence a range of outcomes with more lasting impact this is like the t-shirt example but infinitely more sophisticated mm-hmm. so it's the same kind of model basically isn't it yeah, it is. It is the same kind of model. But the good thing is in terms of the impact that this can have, it's beyond just in terms of planning for the future. There have been some councils that have done it really well to overcome some devastation and some calamity that the community has faced. So, for example, this is the case of a, a city council that was able to use citizen sourcing as a way to be able to co-design the city library. Now, under 
Under normal circumstances, this might seem like a simple project, but this is a case of a city that was devastated by earthquakes, right? And then the, the, among many things that got destroyed, and that was the city library. So one way that they were able to actually involve the community to be able to co-design the library, it went beyond just the, the, the features and functionalities for the library, but it also brought the community together in a way that they were able to actually, they felt rather than being the, looking at the earthquake as a setback, it actually they were able to look at it as an opportunity for them to shape the way the library should be and also the way that local community needs to be. Shoulder to shoulder, they lined up waiting. Tūranga officially open! At the finish line, the ribbon is cut and they all race to be the first to get a glimpse of their new library. <laughs> Tucked inside each floor, 160,000 books, sharing the space with the latest innovations. 3D printers, laser scanners, there's even a place to record your own music and make podcasts and videos for YouTube. It's a library you'd expect in a city rebuilding with the future in mind. I just think that is quite a, an, a, an aspirational statement for Christchurch about who they want to be and what they find people find important here. So what they did really well in this case was to make a decision really early to involve the com community in the design process. So they, they asked the community for what are your ideas and what are your dreams for the new library? So then they provided those ideas and dreams and they solicited this not just through surveys or questionnaires, but by using very rich interaction tools such as online discussion forums, question and answers, lots of stories and pictures where people were actually able to put visuals of what their dreams look like. And all of that was something that they then gave to their, their designers and architects who were very, very impressed by not just the quantity of the ideas that came from the community, but also the quality of the inputs that they were able to get and already and obviously allowed them to get, for them to get a good finger on the pulse for what the community wanted at that point in time in the face of the devastation that they were going through. Krithika, this is a fantastic story so far, but what sorts of challenges and problems come with this technique? There's got to be problems. Indeed, uh, there are a lot of problems because firstly, in this idea of open innovation and crowdsourcing, one of the key challenges is that every organisation needs to involve a variety of stakeholders whom they don't have much control over. So this completely changes the way we think about how we want to control the IP um, of any form of innovation. So nothing is ever a secret anymore, right? Because you have to reveal what you want in order for you to get those inputs. So, um, so that, of course, is not easy for many organizations to do. So while all of this sounds great in theory and many organizations are beginning to show signs of wanting to crowdsource, we see internally, and my research shows that, in fact, that there is a lot of resistance when it comes to actual implementation of those external ideas. Uh, that goes back 
to this idea of not invented here syndrome, which means that as much as we love to hear ideas from external sources, we still believe that we are the experts because we are the technical professionals who we know what is best and we know how this should be done. So very often we are very resistant to um, to actually embrace ideas that are coming from us from outside sources who technically are not experts in that process. So I think it's very important for the organization to be able to overcome this not invented here syndrome, starting with the top management level and then trickling down to the culture of the organization to to want to actually share and collaborate and use those ideas to make things better internally. Um, of course, um, there are other challenges of, uh, as well in terms of uh, keeping the interest levels of the external uh, sources of knowledge. So the solvers are a finite resource as well. And with many, many organizations wanting to engage and in fact already engaging in crowdsourcing, they will, they'll have to work really hard to keep the interest and the engagement and the motivation of these people to want to keep contributing ideas uh, to them and not to their competitor on their platforms. Last question. What do you see as the possibilities of this approach or technique? What can be done with it? How far can this be taken? The possibilities are actually it's endless and that's the power of collaboration and that's that's what we refer to as the wisdom of the crowds and the fact that you could broadcast some of your problems to the outside world, and you can reach out to them through these di digital platforms um, across geographical boundaries, the answer to your question, your problem, could lie anywhere in the world. And that is ba the basis of uh, crowdsourcing, the fact that you could tap into the wisdom of the crowd just by broadcasting your problems. So the, the question then really comes to how good are you as seekers, how you actually want to seek solutions to your problems and how you're able to formulate your problems in such a way that people outside want to engage with you and want to give you solutions to your problems is actually what we should be focusing more on. So as, as the more we start to think about ourselves as as people who don't have to necessarily be solving problems, but as people who actually who should learn how to be able to engage with the outside world, to let them know what our problems are and seek ideas from outside, we actually unlock the potential to be able to engage a vast variety of external stakeholders to solve our internal innovation problems. That brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business Futures is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com slash thinkbusinessfutures. You can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. Thanks, Krithika, for coming on the show and explaining social innovation to us. Until next time.